This is part two of The Big Trip Up Yonder by Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. At six o'clock they arose again, for it was time for their generation to eat breakfast in the kitchenette. No one spoke to them. They had twenty minutes in which to eat, but their reflexes were so dulled by the bad night that they had hardly swallowed two mouthfuls of egg-type processed seaweed before it was time to surrender their places to their son's generation. Then, as was the custom for whoever had been most recently disinherited, they began preparing Gramps' breakfast, which would presently be served to him in bed on a tray. They tried to be cheerful about it, the toughest part of the job was having to handle the honest-to-God eggs and bacon and oleomargarine on which Gramps spent so much of the income from his fortune. Well, said Emerald, I'm not going to get all panicky until I'm sure there's something to be panicky about. Maybe he doesn't know what it was I busted, Lou said hopefully. Probably thinks it was your watch crystal offered Eddie, their son, who was toying apathetically with his buckwheat-type processed sawdust cakes. Don't get sarcastic with your father, said Em, and don't talk with your mouthful either. I'd like to see anybody take a mouthful of this stuff and not say something, complained Eddie, who was 73. He glanced at the clock. It's time to take Gramps' breakfast, you know. Yeah, it is, isn't it, said Lou weakly. He shrugged. Let's have the tray, Em. We'll both go. Walking slowly, smiling bravely, they found a large semicircle of long-faced Fords standing around the bedroom door. Em knocked. Gramps, she called brightly. Breakfast is ready. There was no reply, and she knocked again, harder. The door swung open before her fist. In the middle of the room, the soft, deep, wide, canopied bed the symbol of the sweet by-and-by to every Ford, was empty. A sense of death, as unfamiliar to the Fords as Zoroastrianism or the causes of the Sepoy mutiny, stilled every voice, slowed every heart. Odd, the heirs began to search gingerly, under the furniture, behind the drapes, for all that was mortal of Gramps, father of the clan. But Gramps had left not his earthly husk, but a note, which Lou finally found on the dresser, under a paperweight, which was a treasured souvenir from the World's Fair of 2000. Unsteadily, Lou read it aloud. Somebody who I have sheltered and protected and taught the best I know how all these years, last night turned on me like a mad dog and deluded my anti-gerasone, or tried to, I am no longer a young man. I can no longer bear the crushing burden of life as I once could. So, after last night's bitter experience, I say goodbye. The cares of this world will soon drop away like a cloak of thorns, and I shall know peace. By the time you find this, I will be gone. Gosh, said Willie brokenly. He didn't even get to see how the 5,000-mile speedway race was going to come out. Or the Solar Series, Eddie said with large, mournful eyes. Or whether Mrs. McGarvey got her eyesight back, added Morty. There's more, said Lou, and he began reading aloud again. I, Harold D. Ford, etc., 
do hereby make, publish, and declare this to be my last will and testament, revoking any and all former wills and codicils by me at any time heretofore made. No, cried Willie, not another one. I do stipulate, read Lou, that all of my property of whatsoever kind and nature not be divided, but do devise and bequeath it to be held in common by my issue without regard for generation equally share and share alike. Issue, said Emerald. Lou included the multitude in a sweep of his hand. It means we all own the whole damn shooting match. Each eye turned instantly to the bed. Share and share alike? asked Morty. Actually, said Willie, who was the oldest one present, it's just like the old system, where the oldest people head up things with their headquarters in here and... Lie like that, exclaimed Dim. Lou owns as much of it as you do, and I say it ought to be for the oldest one who's still working. You can snooze around here all day, waiting for your pension check, while poor Lou stumbles in here after work all tuckered out, and how about letting somebody who's never had any privacy get a little crack at it? Eddie demanded hotly. Hell, you old people had plenty of privacy back when you were kids. I was born and raised in the middle of that goddamn barracks in the hall. How about... Yeah, challenged Morty. Sure, you've all had it pretty tough, and my heart bleeds for you. But try honeymooning in the hall for a real kick. Silence, shouted Willie imperiously. The next person who opens his mouth spends the next six months by the bathroom. Now clear out of my room. I want to think. A vase shattered against the wall inches above his head. In the next moment, a free-for-all was underway, with each couple battling to eject every other couple from the room. Fighting coalitions formed and dissolved with the lightning changes of a tactical situation. Im and Lou were thrown into the hall, where they organized others in the same situation and stormed back into the room. After two hours of struggle, with nothing like a decision in sight, the cops broke in, followed by television cameramen from mobile units. For the next half hour, patrol wagons and ambulances hauled away the Fords, and then the apartment was still and spacious. An hour later, films of the last stages of the riot were being televised to 500 million delighted viewers on the eastern seaboard. In the stillness of the three-room Ford apartment on the 76th floor of Building 257, the television set had been left on. Once more, the air was filled with the cries and grunts and crashes of the fray coming harmlessly now from the loudspeaker. The battle also appeared on the screen of the television set in the police station, where the Fords and their captors watched with professional interest. M and Lou, in adjacent four-by-eight cells, were stretched out peacefully on their cots. M called Lou through the partition. You got a wash basin all your own, too? Sure. Wash basin, bed, 
Light the works, and we thought Gramps's room was something. How long has this been going on? She held out her hand. For the first time in forty years, hun, I haven't got the shakes. Look at me. Cross your fingers," said Lou. "The lawyer's going to try to get us a year." Gee," Im said dreamily. "I wonder what kind of wires you'd have to pull to get put away in solitary." All right, pipe down," said the turnkey. "For I'll toss the whole kitten caboodle of you right out, and first one who lets on to anybody outside how good jail is ain't never getting back in." The prisoners instantly fell silent. The living room of the apartment darkened for a moment as the riot scenes faded on the television screen, and then the face of the announcer appeared. Like the sun coming from behind a cloud. And now, friends," he said, "I have a special message from the makers of anti-gerasone. A message for all you folks over one hundred and fifty. Are you hampered socially by wrinkles, by stiffness of joints and discoloration, or loss of hair?" All because these things came upon you before anti-gerasone was developed. Well, if you are, you need no longer suffer, need no longer feel different and out of things. After years of research, medical science has now developed super anti-gerasone. In weeks, yes, weeks, you can look, feel. And act as young as your great great grandchildren. Wouldn't you pay five thousand dollars to be indistinguishable from everybody else? Well, you don't have to. Safe, tested super anti-gerasone costs you only a few dollars a day. Right now, for your free trial carton, just put your name and address on a dollar postcard and mail it to Super, Box Five Hundred Thousand, Schenectady, New York. Have you got that? I'll repeat it: Super, Box Five Hundred Thousand. Underlining the announcer's words was the scratching of Gramps's pen, the one Willie had given him the night before. He had come in a few minutes earlier from the Idle Hour Tavern. He had called a cleaning woman to come straighten the place up, then had hired the best lawyer in town to get his descendants a conviction. A genius who had never gotten a client less than a year and a day, Gramps had then moved the daybed before the television screen so that he could watch from a reclining position. It was something he dreamed of doing for years. Schenectady," murmured Gramps. "Got it." His face had changed remarkably. His facial muscles seemed to have relaxed, revealing kindness and equanimity under what had been taut lines of bad temper. It was almost as though his trial package of super anti-gerasone had already arrived. When something amused him on television, he smiled easily, rather than barely managing to lengthen the thin line of his mouth a millimeter. Life was good. He could hardly wait to see what was going to happen next. As your cup empties. 
and the final words of our story linger in the air, we hope you have enjoyed this brief escape into the world of classic tales. Join us again on the next episode of A Cup of Fiction. If you enjoyed what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you really loved the episode, consider buying the narrator a coffee on our Patreon page. Until next time, may your moments be filled with the inspiration of the joy of a good story.